Hey there, my name is Michael Finney. Thank you for tuning in. This audio series is an exploration of the Nobel-winning mathematician John Nash through the perspective of JAL, who goes by the handle SoKerPatoshi on Twitter. Glad to have the opportunity to talk with you a bit, JAL. Can you tell us about how you initially came into contact with Nash's work? I played poker full-time for um, three years. I, I did like I did decent. I lived off it. I made, I'd be happy to make that kind of money um, is American dollars. I live in Canada and I was, I would go on the forum. There's a main poker forum and there's some pretty smart people there. And I was trying to argue that the Nash, cause we use the Nash equilibrium in poker. Like with the type of poker I played, you would say to a guy, what, what would you, what kind of hands would you play in this situation? What would you raise? What would you fold or whatever? And so you'd say, I'd play Nash or I'd played a little wider than Nash or I played a little, I would play it a little less, a little tighter than Nash. So like you're really using the word Nash all day and we all know because it's Nash equilibrium. Well, I went on the forum trying to uh, argue that ultimately uh, the Nash equilibrium is meant for bringing about peace. And they were saying, no, it's for conflict and war. Um, and I noticed that some of the things I was describing, they were saying it was wrong. And then I realized, okay, the words, I'm, I'm not using standard accepted definitions. And so I started reading some of his work and learning a little more about it. And Eventually, I came across uh, Ideal Money, and I was like, oh, it's eight pages, I'll read it. And I, could, I couldn't understand any of it, but I could barely get the idea that um, it, it said something significant. He was trying to get something across, and he, it was like a grand idea. And so I, I kept thinking about it, and I said, you know, I'm going to, I just, I'm going to, I like to take things like that and think of them in my own terms. So I, I wrote, I rewrote it, and instead of banks, I used poker sites, and instead of chips, I used, uh, or instead of money, I used chips, and I called it Ideal Poker. And so I would read Ideal Poker, and it would speak to me about what was going on in the poker industry. And so I was reading all that, and then I was reading the bargaining problem one day, and thinking, okay, you have money without trade, and then you have money in trade. And so what's the next evolution? And somewhere around that time, my buddy had come up to me and said, hey, did you hear about this Bitcoin thing? Apparently, you, you solve puzzles and then you get Bitcoin. No one knows who created it. And so I was like, oh, that's cool. And I might have watched a video on it. And and it was about six years ago. It was sometime between Mt. Gox and 177 US dollars. And... Um, so I was reading the bargaining problem and thinking what would be the next evolution of money. And I was just like, Oh, Bitcoin. And then I was thinking, and then I was just like, Oh, ideal money. And then I just, I had thought, I thought I'd come up with the epiphany. Like that's how I learned about ideal money. Who is John Nash and what gets confused about him? We all, I always say we all know who John Nash is. And I guess I'm more speaking to some, a phrase I don't really like to use, but the Western world. Um, because most people that you ask, you'll say, well, I, John Nash, I don't know who John Nash is. You say, what about that movie with um, 
Russell Crowe, starring Russell Crowe, called A Beautiful Mind with that mathematician uh, that eventually goes into madness. And then people are like, ah, I know who that is. Right, right. Yes, that guy. Um, and they say like, oh, yeah, he had schizophrenia or something. And um, so we all, we know him through that movie. We tend to uh, have a little bit of an understanding of his biography. And that's, it's that, that um, I, I want to question. Please go into more detail about the four papers Nash released early in his career. For the people who have watched the movie, or, or some people who are more academic and sort of know a little bit more about the actual papers he wrote, um, we have a little bit of a stigma about uh, what he went through, how he went through it, and then so the story goes, he eventually recovered. And so can we talk about his mental illness from the 1950s? Well, one of the first things I want to bring up is at the end of the movie, it shows uh, him, him taking medication, and this is how he got better. But it's well known, and it, it's not conspiracy. It's in his actual biography. He didn't actually take medication to get better. Uh, he... he sort of naturally recovered there's some sort of a remarkable story there and so going back through the movie there's all these scenes in it where they're again it's not conspiracy but they're just not correct and so one of the scenes uh his wife alicia comes into the the insane asylum and she's got a stack of papers and she, she throws them on the desk in front of him and says, John, like you thought you were writing to the government and corresponding with them, but these were never sent. So that's one scene in the movie. And those letters were actually sent. Um, the NSA released one of them, uh, I think, within the last 10, 15 years. And there's some remarkable insights in those papers. So ideal money. So... We're, we were talking about uh, the history of his quote-unquote mental illness. I don't mean to argue that he didn't slide into some form of a mental illness, but I know that there's sort of an untold and not understood story that at least goes alongside that. So back at that time, John Nash was just crushing uh, you know, academia around mathematics and then certain other subjects that uh, he was spreading out to. And so he had these four insights from these four papers, um, the Nash equilibrium, uh, the bargaining problem, uh, the unbreakable encryption conjecture, and uh, parallel control. That's a significant volume of output. Clearly, he was on a brilliant streak at that time. However, I think it's important to notice that in the wake of these realizations, he seems to have become exhausted. Will you address the period in the 1950s when he suffered from intense cognitive stress, what some may refer to as a phase of mental illness? And so he had these four insights from these four papers. He has, so he, he has all those. And then all of a sudden, and this is how the story goes, he starts to go uh, crazy. And what 
what it's known, or you can even hear him say this, he, he said he was going around saying that the anti-communists and the communists were actually on the same side, including against the people. And he was going around saying he was the next Jesus and he was going to save the people. Um, and then he was saying that the government was after him. And then he would, he would start calling home and calling his friends and using fake names. And, and, so, and then eventually he fled to Europe and he wanted to denounce his his citizenship and that's all fairly much in his bio it's not perfectly depicted in the movie but that's what they're trying to depict in the movie well when he got to europe and i kind of knew this when i was researching him and then eventually i found him talking about it and i have it it's in a video clip in an interview he says this was the time when he came up with ideal money because he wanted to and then and then he wanted to uh, change his American dollars into the Swiss franc. So ideal money is a very old idea that um, comes out of this time. So he went to Europe and then um, his wife was in contact with the military. They tracked him down there and he, he, the story goes he was taken back by the Navy. In his words, he was taken back in chains. Will you go into further detail about each of his four insights? So one of those papers was uh, a letter to the NSA. That was the NSA released that letter, and I call it the unbreak, or he calls it the unbreakable encryption conjecture. And so he writes a letter to the NSA, and he he basically says, "I've realized that encryption exponentially." outraces decryption and i'm not a mathematician i'm trying to be general here i think some mathematicians would say that's a fine summary and some would say well that's not exactly what he was saying um but he says like you have to believe me and you can see he's just scribbling it out um he's like i have something important you have to get like get your greatest minds to consider this uh he says we have to. It, we can use this to keep track of foreign nations and their understanding of encryption by um, comparing it to this insight. And he says, "I think I, I've created a, a machine or designs for a machine that um, may have this property, and I've sent them to Rand." Um, and and so he says, "The basic insight is easy to see. Encryption will outrace decryption." And they write him back and say, "Well, we didn't, we didn't receive that machine from Rand, you know." And they corresponded a couple times, and then that was the end of it. So that's one example of a, a correspondence that he did have, where that scene in the movie is is not correct. Now, there's another paper that's significant. There's four of them, and the other paper is called Parallel Control, and he sent this. It's a memorandum to Rand. And right in the, the opening paragraphs, he says, the idea is to decentralize control. And he starts going over and it has a scaling insight in it. And he says, wouldn't it be better to have um, uh, 100 computers work on one problem to solve it in one day rather than have those 100 computers take 100 days to each solve that problem? And so it's a way of connecting computers. And there's this one picture there that shows, it's just, it says communication network in the middle. 
it's got circles around it and then it's got spokes coming out of it to all the other sort of computers um there were i had a someone i had met who's doing machine learning and ai i was like we already have this and I understand that maybe some of the basic designs that he gave, because he just he, he designs it all out in the memo. We we may have that, but at the end he says he talks about uh, genuinely thinking machines, and uh, it's interesting that he closes. He says in closing, the brain is a highly parallel setup. It has to be. You've covered two of the four insights. Please give us some detail on the other two, known as the bargaining problem and the Nash equilibrium. The bargaining problem, it, the, the basic idea with this solution that uh, he put forward in a paper, and that this was, so all of these papers are around uh, 1950 to 1955, I believe. I think they all are, but they're all around that time. He was about 25. Um, the bargaining problem, it, sh- it the way I explain it is it shows uh, – situation of trade without money and then it shows how money optimizes it so you can have with certain starting assumptions um and they say it shows how young he was at the time because of he used like a pocket knife a baseball glove a baseball bat and so you have all these items and you have two players and they they're gonna bargain and the idea is when you have a transferable utility and you put it in the equation, more trades can happen. So I'll explain it where if you want to trade a car for a truck, but the truck is worth much more, you don't want to chop a piece of the truck off, right? So you have money that can can fill in the difference between the two, and so you can have a more granular solution. And then the other paper of his uh, was non-cooperative games, it's called, and uh, they say it's it was his thesis or his doctorate, and uh, he he's got two citations in it. I think one is um, von Neumann, and one is himself. And the Nash equilibrium is the that's the the solution that he comes up. In. It's called the Nash equilibrium, and what it is is a general solution to all non cooperative. Uh, finite games and it's an interesting solution it's it's the one he's most known for and it has in it 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 doesn't provide you can't apply it to a game and then you solve it and now you know the best move but what he proved is that all such games do in fact have a solution and so it's almost like you would hand that in to a professor and they'd say, well, that's great, but now you need to find that solution. But there's there's an insight there of you, you don't even need that. You you can be very, very general and and there, then there's the solution. So he put that paper forward and then it was decades later, I guess about 40 years later in 1994, I believe, where he won a Nobel Prize for it. Now, I recently seen him in an interview or, or seen from an interview that was like recent, maybe in the last 10 years or so, comparatively recent. Uh, he said they didn't know the ramifications of that paper at that time, but I did. And that that paper is known to have 
had a dramatic effect on many of the sciences, uh, not just economics, with which the game theory was applied to. Um, and it, I've, I've read, I've heard it's one of the most cited papers or the most cited. The next episode will be available soon. Eighteen ninety three, Chicago's Columbian Exposition. Over one hundred twenty five years ago, the Columbian Exposition was staged in Chicago on Lake Michigan's shoreline. Visitors from around the country and world were first introduced to many industrial technologies and commercial offerings that would shape twentieth century culture. This book explores a collection of event photographs and juxtaposes them against a set of modern images to catalog the living remnants in art and architecture around the city as a legacy to the eighteen ninety three World's Fair. 1893, Chicago's Columbian Exposition, now available from Amazon. Audiobook version available soon. Hey there, my name is Michael Finney. Thank you for tuning in again. This audio series is an exploration of the Nobel-winning mathematician John Nash through the perspective of Jal, who goes by the handle Sokopatoshi on Twitter. Can you describe Nash's contributions to game theory and economics? Well, this leads us to 1994 when he won the Nobel Prize for the Nash Equilibrium. Um, In the paper, Non-Cooperative Games, uh, he does go over, I think, three-handed poker. So he says poker is an obvious um, use case for this. And so you extend it out to all games. And then when you're looking at economics, if you have certain assumptions, you can render a model down to a game and then you can start to solve certain scenarios game theoretically and just as an aside for about game theory when you have that general solution the Nash equilibrium they call it optimal but it's not maximally exploitative so maximally exploitative means like if you're playing paper rock scissors the Nash equilibrium is to throw random out but if your opponent's always using scissors then you're going to just want to throw rock out and you'll do way better if you're doing random they can never exploit you but you're not necessarily maximally exploiting them so the nash equilibrium is like the most balanced solution between two players that are like the best of the best and they know what each other knows so you can take uh when you have the Nash equilibrium, that helps you decide uh, how to exploit your opponent. And so you can see how far they've deviated from the Nash equilibrium, and that can tell you how to deviate from it. So with economics, you can uh, take a, a scenario, render it down to a game, and then you can find the Nash equilibrium and then and then it might be like a bargaining scenario or something like that. So he won the Nobel Prize for Economics in 1994. And then the very next year, 1995, he started to give lectures and write about his concept, Ideal Money. How does Nash's work interface with the Keynesian perspective? If you enter any economic debates and Bitcoiners intrinsically do or are they a lot a lot of bitcoiners that's what they're doing right now is they're 
they're professing about economics, they're trying to learn about it, and some of them are academic, some of them are self-studied, etc. So you'll hear the word Keynesian, and you'll hear Keynes. And one of the things, I've, I have a lot of art writing on this, and one of the things I write about and explain is that Keynesianism is not necessarily Keynes. And that's especially true depending on who's using the words. But it's also especially true if we go back and look at the Bretton Woods, the beginning of the Bretton Woods, which was a conference that was held near the end of World War II. I'm not, I'm not super trained on this, so some of it I might get a little bit wrong. But I have a base. I don't think anything's fatal to what I'm explaining, like sort of my argument. Um, I'd like to be corrected, but anyways, generally, or, or basically, at the end of the World War II, as I understand, uh, leaders around the world wanted to call a conference, or they wanted to get together because they knew if they didn't hash out a proper framework for the new global economy, then there was another chance, there's a good chance that they would slip into World War Three, And that's, it's what's quite relevant about Keynes, if I remember Keynes properly, in between World War Two or World War One and World War Two, when Germany had reparations to pay, they set up the Bank of International Settlements, I think that was uh, when they did that. But Whatever was set up for the reparations, Keynes didn't agree with. As I understand, he he was saying, this is going to be too harsh. It's going to be too hard for them to pay. And by and so World War II happened at the Bretton Woods. Keynes' proposed Keynes' proposal was for um, a bank or which was an international settlement unit that had an apolitical nature to it. And that, I believe he wanted to create the IMF. Um, but nonetheless, they didn't go, they said sort of, okay, we get it, that would be good. Um, we have, the U.S. was like, we've, we've got all this gold. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to serve the world with U.S. dollars, and we'll base that on... Um, a ratio for gold. So that was a sort of gold standard. Um, I think the actual classical gold standard ended uh, during World War One or at the end of World War One. Um, and so we went on this sort of, or went on this de facto gold standard. And that lasted until I think it's 1971 when Richard Nixon broke when that broke and it was called the Nixon shock. And then sort of since then we've been on a floating standard. And now the system that we use, uh, which is sort of a system of inflation control, which believes generally in about 2% inflation or this target may move or not. Um, we sort of use that. That's where people say that's Keynesianism. And they say like, they start to say Keynes was bad and Keynes was wrong. And it's, that's where it's like, no, that's not, that's not really Keynes. 
Going further into economic terminology, let's start with how the concept of inflation is treated within the models we're addressing. I heard a saying from somebody saying, uh, it, it's something like, that's why fighting about inflation or arguing about inflation is just wrong. And the idea is, well, you, you can see this between people. You'll see them arguing about economics. And then if you, if you really know the different definitions, you can see that someone's not – two people aren't using the same definition of inflation. So there's two sort of main definitions of inflation or two that you'll hear used most of the time and um, – they have their own relevance to say Bitcoin. The the I believe it's the older definition of inflation was an increase in the supply of units uh, of a currency. So inflation meant you, say the government would print more money, or there would be more. You could even add gold coins to the system, and and that would be a type of inflation. The other type of inflation refers more to, well, it'd be, see, I want to say an, uh, a decrease in the purchasing power of a money, but I don't think that's quite right. I think it's a general increase in the price of goods, which can be viewed as um, a decrease in the purchasing power of money. Uh, and and then, so I'm not quite sure those are exactly the same, but for all intents and purposes, they, they usually are. But what isn't, necessarily the same is that an increase in the supply of units necessarily correlates to uh, a general increase in the prices or decrease in the purchasing power of a money. And if, like, I could say it again, but maybe if you need to play that back, um, it, it should make sense. Just because you increase the number of units of a currency doesn't mean that you decrease its purchasing power. And, and and the reason is because from a certain framework, money has a type of demand. And if you over-exceed that demand, then you'll, you'll decrease the purchasing power. You'll increase the, the prices. But if you... If that demand is growing, you and and you don't serve it, uh, th then they might that demand might turn to alternate sources. If the demand increases, and you meet that demand with an increase in units of the currency, you can keep the purchasing power or uh, the general price level the same, and so it's important to understand that although often when you increase the supply of units, you will increase the prices or decrease the purchasing power. Um, it's not always true. So you can often talk, talk about it like it is, but people who aren't careful with these words use them as if it's always like that. And it isn't always true. So those are the two main, uh, definitions of inflation and uh, how we would disambiguate them. Building on the notion of inflation while getting back to Nash, how does ideal money factor in? So we have two definitions of the word inflation. And ultimately, 
what John Nash saw with his insight of ideal money is sort of another definition of inflation. Now, to, to get to this point, and he explains this, it's, he has 20 years of lectures of writing, and they're fairly scattered. But if you go through them and pick parts out and arrange it, you can see that he explains that this concept, the, the implementation, the actual ability to make this happen uh, came to him through an idea he calls the ICPI. To understand the ICPI, there's there's two lines we need to go over. One is how central banking works, how it the inflation target today. And what central banks will essentially do is they'll take a basket of local prices and uh that's and it's called a, a consumer. It's a consumer price index, and they'll usually target. Say, I, I don't know if I can say usually now because they have their own policies and different things, different circumstances change it. But there's sort of a if you ask someone who kind of knows, like, what's the target for inflation? They'll probably say like around two percent or something. So, but whatever it is, there's a percentage that they target, and they they're trying to. A central bank will try and influence the money supply and try and basically increase it slightly past the demand such that uh, the, the, the general prices of goods uh, um, and things that people use, they, they specifically pick ones like uh, for Canada, oil and gas are, are super important and then there might be like a food part of the composition etc so they'll take that basket and they'll they'll try and push those prices up by about two percent over um, the terms that they use so that's a it's a it's a local or a sort of national level uh, basket of prices what Nash is speaking to is an internationally composed basket where you take uh, global commodity prices and um, each of the nations or you could think of the euro as a nation would then target that. Now that's one line but now going back to gold and the gold standard he also talks about how and people will say this so with the gold standard, some people will say it's really favorable. We need to go back to it. And then some people will say, no, it broke. Look at how horrible it is. If we go back to it, we'll just break off of it again. What I sort of say is the Nashian view or a more intelligent balance view is you're going to say, okay, there's some favorable aspects to the gold standard. And then there's some negative aspects to it what are they um gold did bring stability it bring a certain it brought it brought a certain apolitical nature to our money supplies um, but there's problems with it and one of the problems and so he outlines the problems and one of the problems that he shows is or explains is that when you're on a gold standard it puts geopolitical pressure on the gold mining so if there's a country that has you know a lot of gold then you know they might 
they're going to suffer from uh, political pressure. Uh, superpower nations, etc., are going to want that gold. Another problem with a gold standard, and this is sort of related to um, the pressure that you put on gold through the demand. You you could have a technology, and one and one example is uh, cyanide leaching, where all of a sudden you can produce gold at a way faster rate, or the cost to mine gold goes down, and so the supply is has been historically steady, but we've barely, barely touched the amount of gold that is on uh, our planet. And then you could also sort of say our planet alone. And that's, it's sort of not an insignificant to mention because um, if you were, if gold became super, super important as far as a basis, a rebasis for our um, global economy, uh, you could have supply shocks in that regard. So these limitations lead Nash's argument to consider other commodities. So there, there are other commodities that have um, the sort of scarcity that gold has, which is really uh, a relation to the cost to, to mine them. And so he starts to say, well, you could use, you could use an array of commodities and, or, or whatever, pri- prices of anything really. And then this would it would take away the centralization problem that you have with the geopolitical pressure you put on um, the production of gold. So that solves the geopolitical pressure. Now, he still says, however, consider a miracle energy source comes along. And then all of a sudden, the cost to produce certain of these commodities uh sort of dramatically reduce um, and then so then all of a sudden this basket would it would have to be reweighted and it you know it's it's reasonable consideration and he says well you would need politicians to come in it would be basically a politician's job to come in and decide how to reweight it and bringing in politicians is it's the problem you're trying to solve. You're trying to have an apolitical basis. And so he, what he notes is that it, it's effectively a non-starter because of this problem. Now, there, so I, and this is, I asked George Selgin about this. Um, he's someone that a lot of Bitcoiners know. And he said, Nash's ICPI, not very novel and not very appealing. And then there's... Another quote by Nash that explains um, he figured out a way to do this without something like an ICPI. So he he admit he builds it up and explains it, and then he gets to a point where he admits that it's a non-starter. And but he's not finished, and that's sort of important because the ICPI then it's a theoretical. It's a theoretical device for for pointing towards a direction of a of an ideal basis. So gold is good, and then you have the array of commodities, which is a little better, but it has this one problem uh, that if a miracle energy source comes along, then it would be need to be reweighted. But still, the direction that it's going, it's becoming more 
more and more ideal. And so it, it is theoretical only, but it still has this quality. And I relate this to the Nash Equilibrium uh, paper that you proposed where you'd pick it up and say, well, you, you almost have an answer here, but you don't quite. We hear a lot about sound money within the Bitcoin community, particularly in context of the gold standard. However, that may be an incomplete comparison. Is Bitcoin ideal money? Is Bitcoin ideal money? What ideal money is, uh, and I, I, there's different lines of thinking that it could be that all lead to the same sort of goal, but what ideal money is um, sort of using the, the theoretical notion of the ICPI uh, is the value trends of all of the currencies move the same. So from an international view, if there was a free market and uh, anyone could use anyone else's currency as a savings device, the ICPI is a non-starter, but it would be an ideal basis. Now, what it means is nations around the world would inflation target to the to the ICBI, um, and there's there's a quote, and it gets people in trouble. It's caused some controversy because he says, "We believe that zero percent inflation should be the target," and he says, "For what is called inflation." Now, this is where people make a mistake. Because they say, well, 2% or 0% means the prices of goods don't change. Therefore, and this is wrong, the purchasing power of the money is stable, which is, you can't use that therefore. And then they say, therefore, again, what Nash is calling for is a perfectly stable money. This is known in economics, especially the Austrian school, that this is, you can't do that. You can't make a money that is stable in purchasing power because the prices that you use to compose your index is a subjective thing. You you can't choose an objective array. You can't use everything. So... Central banks use a target that is a basket of prices, but that's their tool. It's not a statement, or they're not trying to admit that if a money has 0% inflation, it has um, stable purchasing power. And that's so when we look at with an ICPI, what is ideal? is to have everyone inflation targeting the same thing with the same target percentage. So it could be two, but Nash says, he says, well, why not? He says if it could be between, uh, like, well, to say two, well, what about why not, like, just one, like half of that? Okay, well, if half of that's good, like, why not half of that? And he literally does say that. And so the idea is, let's. I, I, I believe what he's saying is the target would be zero. 
So if you had an ICPI, you'd have 0% versus it. And for what is called inflation, what is called inflation is not the purchasing power of the money. What is called inflation is um, that which it's re related to that which we are targeting. Um, and that's, I think most people won't quite understand that, but some people will. And it's, it's really important and it's useful if some people do. As a metaphorical device, helps us understand what would be ideal. It's a non-starter. Um, we've. It seems like we've tried this because we've. The world has centralized around sort of a single currency provider. Um, and now, now we want to look at Bitcoin in regard to a miracle energy source. First of all, with Bitcoin, if you think of it sort of a Bitcoin standard, but it's a little bit different than what I would call the Safedean's Bitcoin standard. Um, but taking the ICPI out and putting Bitcoin in as the basis. So first of all, some people argue that Bitcoin's mining is centralized. Now, I could steel man that argument and say, okay, that's fine. It's centralized. But you can't, it's not centralized such that you can produce more Bitcoin at a faster rate. It, the, whole, the whole sort of genius of it um, is that it's, it's guarded from that. So the mining could be centralized, but we're, you're saying something else with the centralization. And what's relevant to that is if we can say, a miracle if a miracle energy source comes along how would that affect bitcoin so the cost of mining say gets really cheap and then you have a whole bunch of miners of, or, or computers that want to capitalize on the profit and so say the network floods and satoshi explained with the difficulty adjustment algorithm which is in my opinion the crux and what adam back points to when he says satoshi um satoshi fixed the problem of inflation i, I never understood that until I, I i read a recent thread i finally found the thread where um back had he had referenced his when he did say that the difficulty adjustment algorithm controls inflation in regard to the units that are um, supplied. And so it, it, and I'm not very technical, but I think I can give a metaphorical explanation that would satisfy um, that it senses the hash power on the network and adjusts the difficulty. I think it's every 10 minutes is the idea. And then, so it regulates the supply. So if a miracle energy source comes along um, you don't need an external entity to adjust. And so what happens is the problem that makes the ICPI a non-starter is what Nash outlined and what Satoshi actually solved um, or brought to the table was the solution to that problem. And from there, you just have all of the nations in the world inflation targeting Bitcoin. 
and then you've shown that Bitcoin is an ideal basis for that Bitcoin is a proper basis for Nash's argument. Thanks for listening. The next episode will be available soon. Hey there, my name is Michael Finney. Thank you for tuning in again. This audio series is an exploration of the Nobel-winning mathematician John Nash through the perspective of Jal, who goes by the handle SoKrapatoshi on Twitter. Why do these realizations matter? Since Bitcoin's inception, it was sort of taken a hold of by a libertarian faction. Um, I think for a lot of people, Bitcoin is that thing that we wish existed and, and so it does that thing we want, you know, to happen. And for, for some people, they're waiting for a massive change in the world. And for some of those people, they want the elite and the governments to sort of die. For a lot of the early Bitcoin adopters, the fact or seemingly seeming fact that you can't, a government can't, take Bitcoin down, once it's reached a certain level, there's just no stopping it, became, uh, you know, the model, the call for uh, the new order of anarchy. And with that came a lot of what's called Austrian-minded economic philosophers who believe that, and I don't know how far I can really get into this or, or need to, but they believe that a money should be back one to one. So like they want to be back on the gold standard. And I, I think or guess it means they don't want credit and really don't think it's worth opening that up. But nonetheless, they built an argument that, Bitcoin is going to be the global currency and it's going to push all other major currencies to have no purchasing power at all. So it's going to hyperinflate them. And this is dubbed uh, hyper-Bitcoinization. And so I've known about Bitcoin for, I don't know, uh, six years or so. And that movement, that libertarian movement carried it and then eventually you had academia and then central bank researchers, etc., come and try and do studies on Bitcoin. And every time they do a study, they come to the idea that uh, Bitcoin can't scale in that regard. And it's not useful um, because you can't increase or decrease the supply of money. So you can't adjust the supply of Bitcoin to the demand. Therefore, there's no mechanism for stabilizing the purchasing power. Now, this happened on and around the time when persons, most notably including Roger Ver, and a, and a faction arose that wanted to increase the block size. And the idea was Bitcoin can't scale um, on the base layer unless uh, the block size was raised and that was in opposition to what they call and 
we could call core and core supporters uh, who are basically saying if sort of two things one if you just increase the block size um, you know the, the economics doesn't necessarily hold and you 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 um, you basically open an attack vector you basically um, you know it's like you're breaking it and I think along with that the idea is some people say well we could have a one-off raise or we could raise every x years but i think a lot of people luckily realize that you're you're opening it up to political debate and you're taking the apolitical nature out of the money and with bitcoin as a basis for john nash's argument it doesn't need to scale it can just stay especially the base layer can stay as a high value settlement layer and so nations can use it to transact because the fact that it only um can do say seven transactions per second that could be an old number things have changed but just for example it doesn't preclude it like it makes it really expensive for the average joe user but it doesn't preclude it from large like you could still send a billion dollars for five bucks say that that you know there's no problems there that sort of battle um it was known as a civil war in bitcoin land say um, it really shaped the narrative and you had both sides fighting around um how bitcoin would scale and 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 how it would scale in regard to becoming a world um currency and what there it's in Nick Zabo put out an interesting essay around that time. I think almost too late. Like, I think it, it's really useful. Um, I think it's called Blockchains and Social Scalability. It's something like that. And in it, he says, um, Satoshi's uh, brilliant contribution was, he says something like that. And it was the trade-off between computational scalability for social scalability and what what's often cited is in the beginning bitcoin didn't have a block size cap as i understand and then it was found that you could uh do some sort of attack on it like so like a ddos attack or something like that so they decided to put a one megabyte cap on it and if you look on the forum the next few posts after uh satoshi said oh you know we put this cap on, don't worry, we can raise it if we need to. Uh, if more than one poster said, uh, you, like, we need to, we can't do this, we need to remove this now because it's going to get harder to change as time goes by. And I don't, I don't think Satoshi responded to that. So, sort of possible, or it seems like the idea was um, there was an attack vector. They decided they had to put this cap on and then sort of anyone who had a decent understanding of it was like, we can't remove this. And so fast forward to the future now and there's been a runaway with the narrative of it. And it's like, it's sort of too late, but there's, there hasn't been a narrative or, or an explanation or an argument as to um, 
how Bitcoin can survive without how can how can grow to be a global currency without raising um, that block size. Now, since then, we've had Lightning channels and we have Layer Two scaling, uh, which is you know very interesting. It seems to have its own limitations. I'm I, like I don't look at it as like broken. I think it it's definitely part of the evolution of it. But if you go there, the world has not considered, and I try and read any paper I can from any of the central banks, especially that that put papers on the subject. It hasn't considered um, that Bitcoin could be used as a global inflation target. So the the Nashian orientation um, hasn't been considered. How does it affect the world we live in? So Nash talks about how there could be an initial groundswell. He uses the word, and it it has some different meanings, and I I don't perfectly recall them. I just, I know that I I looked it up and I contemplated it. But the idea is um, sort of after an initial confusion, after um, an initial, like there's there's a lot of change that he foresees, and we've gone through a lot of change for people. Say, for example, if you're using Bitcoin as an example, there's been a lot of change in our understanding of money because of that. And and he says then after a certain period of time, um, the orientation might start to change. And so, and then he starts to describe it, and he starts to describe how um, an international money might arise, um, and it might have like a decent quality in what he calls the Gresham sense, which um, it's another thing I probably won't go too far into. Many people know it, but the idea is there's good money and bad money, and he equates, he says, sort of good money might arise. And it might cause the people to better understand um, the inflation of their own local currencies. And then they might learn to demand a, a better currency. And and this, the use of demand in that sense could be, um, you know, could be out on the streets protesting, but it could be just um, that, you know, that which the consumer uses, that would be sort of a, a type of demand. And that this demand will... Um, lessen the depreciation in quality so so over time there might be just a tendency towards an order um, of better quality money and that means that as everyone's going towards that better quality then um, it, it would tend towards a ceiling of idealness and idealness in this sense happens to be, well, it's what we were talking about, um, to be all on the same page. And then he says, as that starts to happen, it's possible that um, sort of leaders around the world can get together and mandate it as fiat. And so the idea is the population starts to understand it. They put pressure on their politicians and then different leaders around the world, and this could be central bankers, could be leaders, um, it could be just certain people or leaders, right? It, it's like a sort of like a Neil Bretton Woods situation where we get around and say, you know, we've we 
we've evolved, we have a new basis. But remember, he doesn't give a basis. And I, I found this word, it's called an enthymeme. And this is a philosophical argument where the, the basis or, or the premise isn't stated. And I find ideal money to be an enthymeme. My argument, and I wanted to say that this was Nash's argument, but it's not palatable for people. They can't accept it. So I only, people seem to accept it better when I say my argument is that Bitcoin fits as a suitable basis for Nash's argument. And so we, so we have that premise. And I think over time, uh, we might see, we haven't seen this yet, but it's, a central banker, a research paper might come out and say, we realize that a Bitcoin standard could be better than a gold standard. It doesn't, it doesn't suffer those same problems. And at the same time, if the U S if the world were going to move off the U S dollar as the reserve currency, it would free the U S from the Triffin dilemma. Um, and, And this reminds me of, a lady named Helene Ray who has, I've seen her talks and she has all the research data for all of the relations between countries um, sort of in regard to their balance sheets. And she says there's a growing um, maturity problem. There's there's a growing problem. There's a discrepancy between um, the assets and liabilities and it's showing to us to be a world bank, which we all kind of know. And she says there's, there's, she says, I don't want to predict a run on the bank or or a run on the U S as the world bank. Um, But the stage is being set for it. So she's, she's sort of a realist there. She doesn't want to step outside her data, um, but it's there. And a lot of people sort of predict that. Well, the U.S. sort of doesn't even want to be um, the issuer of the world reserve currency. They would rather have more control over their local economy, and this would be this would be a consideration. It doesn't seem to make sense right now because you have Bitcoin in its early stages, and everyone's trying to push it as the, the global currency that everyone uses. Um, but if you change that orientation and and that may be a very far away future that 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 may make sense but right now you can just like we can move over to inflation targeting bitcoin and what that basically entails is central banks um owning bitcoin it's a very easy quick change in that sense thanks for letting us record together to get all these ideas out to people in audio You and I have talked quite a bit over the last year, but that doesn't mean I've heard all of your thoughts about Nash. And I would imagine that plenty of other people haven't yet either. Yes, I think think what is sort of the most difficult and the easiest to understand for people is uh, the significance of the ICPI. Um, That's sort of difficult, but it like it's easy to understand what he's saying, but then how, like why he says the, the ultimate implementation of asymptotically ideal money, um, which is the subconcept of how we would get to ideal money came to him 
when he first conceived of the concept of the ICPI. And so that there's a logic, there's a leap of logic there. And, and that's where it gets difficult. How, why is this important? How did you come up with that? And um, like, what, why would this be relevant to our future? And so if I come in and say, well, Bitcoin fits at that, it becomes uh, f- fantastical or, or it, it's, it's like there's, there's no way that these arguments speak to each other. But, or, or the, the implementation of Bitcoin is, is spoken to by ideal money. But it, I, it does fit as a suitable basis. And then all of a sudden you have an interesting story about a man at the end of ideal money he starts to talk about how the keynesians are comparable to the bolsheviks or bolshevik communism and then and he on a side note he separates ideal marxism or, or like theoretically ideal with the actual the bad stuff that happened and so it's really interesting in regard to his illness way back when he was saying the anti-communists and the communists are on the same team and I'm going to be the one that saves the people. Um, because he he notes that the Keynesian orientation, not necessarily Keynes, but what we, what our, how our global economy works today uh, is, a, is comparable to Bolshevik communism. And so he, he returns to this insight that seemed crazy, but then he puts a logical argument to it. And then he says there might be, based on a sort of political evolution, um, the people might learn to demand an ideal quality of your money because of an alternative savings option that they have. So it's an orientation that's not, uh, when you first come across Bitcoin, it's not something you would think of right away. But when you start to see it that way, um, a lot of, a lot of the legwork that Nash has done, uh, starts to become relevant and significant. And so I, I really hope that um, some people who have a little more knowledge about economics and maybe some of the central banking researchers and research papers that come out can consider this view. And so I guess I'm just trying to get it out to enough people um, so that happens. This completes our series on Nash. Thanks for listening. 